we definitely have a shadow inventory. I mean, in, in 2019, before the pandemic, we saw almost 250,000 properties brought to foreclosure auction nationwide, not just auction.com, that's the market. And then in 2020, it's looking like it's going to be more like, not all the public record data is in, but it's going to be more like 125,000. So the question is this, how do most agents find the secrets to succeed in today's competitive real estate market, especially when the top agents are keeping those secrets to themselves? That's the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. Hi, I'm Aaron Amuchastegui, and welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. Real Estate Rockstars, this is Aaron Amuchastegui. I'm coming to you today with the real estate state of the market. I'm excited about today's interview. I get to talk to Darren Bloomquist today. He is He's with auction.com, which is you know one of the largest, if not the largest kind of trustee for foreclosures throughout the United States. In my book on how to buy foreclosures, I tell people like, hey, if you want to know where the local foreclosures are, first go to auction.com because they're probably going to have at least one of the foreclosures in your area. They're going to show you, you know, the address and the time of the sale. So if nothing else, you go there to go find it. I first saw Darren. Uh, I've seen Darren speak a lot of different times over the past like six or seven years. The very first time was at a, a single family rental conference where, you know, Darren was able to, you know, he, he kind of said, this is how many people own single family rentals. Here's what's happening with the market. Here's what's happening in the future. Five, six years ago, so many of those predictions have come true as we've got to see different things. And I thought it'd be a great time to have them on here for us to talk about the market as we're all trying to dust off our crystal balls, you know, guessing essentially. We're going to get the crystal balls just to guess. Darren, how's it going, man? Good. Yeah. I think I remember that that's conference. I, I think I sat down next to you at, at lunch and just struck up a conversation. Yeah. If I, if I it was like 2015, 2016. Yeah, you 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 yeah. were on stage. We sat. I sat down next to you at lunch that day, and we got to talk about all sorts of stuff, market related. Um, yeah, and that was you know that was kind of the infancy of the single family rental boom that we've we've seen over the last few years. So that's certainly been an interesting phenomenon. So. Uh, that that was like the I think it was the first single family rental conference, and the the or maybe it was the first or the second that they had done. And I remember being amazed because at that time only 10 companies owned a thousand houses or more, you know, in single family rentals. Now there's a bunch of them that own over a thousand houses. Some companies own tens of thousands. And so a lot has changed since then. So what's your, what's your official title over at auction.com? I am a vice president of market economics. Yeah. So I'm not sure exactly what that means, but <laughs> it, it means I get to do a lot of the stuff I love doing, which is crunching the data and looking at market trends both for internal audiences, for us to help predict, hopefully, what's, what, what's coming in the market so we can adjust, and then also for external audiences, which are primarily for us, our buyers who are real estate investors out there, and, and then our sellers as well, which are the, the banks and the other lenders who are coming to us to, to sell their, their foreclosure properties. Yeah. I can't, I was just remembering, I think a year ago, we did our like two or three day live Roddy Summit and I interviewed you for that. And you and I came on, it was a couple months after kind of the pandemic had started, the world was shut down, the foreclosure moratoriums. And we were looking at statistics of old moratoriums 
And at that time, the bet, one of the better examples that you had was after one of the hurricanes in Texas, where they had like no foreclosures for a few months. And then as soon as the hurricane was over, there was this huge spike in foreclosures. So I've been kind of counting what I think is this shadow inventory of Texas of, hey, in a healthy market, there would have been an extra 30 or 40,000 houses that would have gotten foreclosed on this past year. Do you think there's a shadow inventory of foreclosures that are that are growing out there? I know they also have equity, they're selling. What are your thoughts about some, like a shadow inventory of foreclosures that should have foreclosed on? Yeah, I think, I think there is a shadow inventory. It's not as maybe as scary as we initially thought it was going to be, or maybe some people thought it was initially going to be. At the beginning of the pandemic, nobody knew exactly how things would turn out. Mm-hmm. But there, I mean, even if you put aside the economic shock from the pandemic, which did drive huge jumps in unemployment, which then unemployment is a huge driver, is typically the number one driver of foreclosures. But even if you put that aside and assume, okay, because of all the stimulus, those folks who got in trouble are going to be saved (laughs) somehow because it was, you know, it has in hindsight now, it was a fairly short-lived shock. I mean, we're still, we're not out of it completely for sure, but it was a short-lived shock. But putting that aside, just looking at the deficit of foreclosures that would have happened in kind of a normal healthy market that were delayed because of the, the blanket nature of some of this, this uh, the protections that were put out there like the moratorium and the forbearance. It was very low bar in terms of qualifying for that. So if you take that into account, we definitely have a shadow inventory. I mean, in, in 2019, before the pandemic, we saw almost 250,000 properties brought to foreclosure auction nationwide, not just auction.com, that's the market. And then in 2020, it's looking like it's going to be more like, not all the public record data is in, but it's going to be more like 125,000. And so you have a a deficit there of of over 100,000 foreclosures that would have happened in a normal healthy market that didn't. Uh, And so that's that's kind of how I'm looking at the the shadow inventory at, at the lowest threshold of even if the shock doesn't add any foreclosures to the mix. The when I was looking at statistics, I think I was thinking like if you had like California and Texas and Florida, the, those three states I think make they make up a really high percentage of foreclosures nationwide. Uh, do you know what that number is? Is it like a third of the foreclosures nationwide or something? Uh, like those three I states? couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but yeah, those um, you say California, Texas, Florida, right? Yeah. Yeah, maybe I can look it up while we're <laughs> talking yeah. here. But if, yeah, I know if anybody knows the answer to that, you're the guy that knows the answer to that. But there's so that's why w- when we think of things proportionally, there's like a hundred thousand deficit, hundred thousand property deficit. Again, and, and the point that I keep trying to hit with people too is that's in a normal healthy market. Like foreclosures are healthy; they happen in a healthy market. People decide they don't want the house anymore, or they decide they aren't going to pay, or they move and they just forget about the obligation. It's really common somebody moves, they rent it out. The renter moves out afterward, and they're like, "Well, I'm not going to try to get another tenant. I'm, I'm, you know, a little upside down or not." There's a ton of properties with equity right now in foreclosure. Yeah. I mean, some of the statistics I was looking at was, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll have to grab up one of my recent images of it, but it feels like more houses than ever before have equity, and so that will probably, you know, I guess the longer that some of the the moratoria goes, the better chance somebody could sell their house for a profit. 
what do you think is going to happen to if somebody hasn't made 10 months in payments? Do you think, you know, or how does that work? So when the moratorium's over, are they going to owe $50,000? Are they going to get tacked onto the back of the loan? Have you been talking to many owners yeah. about that? Yeah, that's a great, great point. And, you know, it does tie into the equity question, I think, because um, Black Knight has actually done some really good analysis around the, the impact, kind of the unintended consequence of forbearance and its impact on home equity. And so they're predicting after, at the beginning of forbearance, these loans that are going into forbearance that are delinquent across all loan categories would only one in 10, I think it's 9% had low equity, meaning not enough equity to sell and avoid foreclosure. Mm -hmm. But then so with the forbearance, you, let's say you have 10 months, they, were, they looked at 18 months, which is the maximum amount now that, that folks can go in forbearance. And after 18 months, yes, most of the, the programs, you don't, there's no lump sum repayment that happens at the end of that forbearance. It gets tacked on to the end of the loan. So your payments just start up the same as they were prior to, uh, to the forbearance. So it's not a payment shock, but it does have the impact on the equity in their analysis because the missed interest taxes and insurance payments that you missed over those 18 months basically get added to the balance of the loan. So the balance of the loan goes, goes up. It's almost like a negative amortizing loan. And so there, anyway, their estimate is that 9% low equity goes to about 22% low equity after 18 months of, of the loans. If we look at FHA specifically, they're predicting after 18 months, it could be as much as 36% of FHA loans would have that low equity position in uh, uh, 36% in forbearance. So I think equity is certainly talked about a lot. And it's very true that a lot of folks in foreclosure have equity or a lot of delinquencies have equity, but there are some nuances to the the forbearance, giving people more time, letting them just miss payments for 18 months is having a negative impact on their, their equity. So it's not free. So I think when I, when I looked at our stats in March, there was 1,844 foreclosures scheduled in, in notices in Texas for the, the month of March auction. 65% of them had equity. Now I didn't go through and figure out a lot of equity, a little compared. There's, there's 98 million in equity for the for the 1,844 houses that were scheduled. But you make a good point on there to help people understand. So if someone owes $100,000 on their house and they go into forbearance and they don't make payments for 12 months, after that 12 months, they could just start making their payment again, but they don't just owe 100,000. Do they owe essentially like all of the payment for in most cases? So will they owe like 112,000? after their year or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the Black Knight analysis, which if you go to their mortgage monitor report, I think it was in January, I looked at this to get more detail. But across all, all the loans that they look at, it was, I think, the basically another $25,000 on average was added to the loan because of the missed interest and taxes and insurance payments during those 18 months. Um, so yeah, you have, you, you pick up your payments, and of course, the other part of that equation is you, you've regained, if you've lost a job, you've regained a job mm -hmm. and you have that income so you can continue to make those payments. But then 
you you probably have lost you may have lost equity at that point, uh, which is not a, a deal breaker. You know, some people will keep making those payments. They need a place to live, right? But uh-huh. equity is also a, a factor that may convince them. Well, if I don't have that job, I you know there's no there's not that lifeline to to sell and avoid foreclosure. But yeah, it's. I mean, one of the crazy things that we looked at recently too is that even though a lot of homeowners have equity who are in distress, for whatever reason, you know, and and maybe you could provide some insight on this, a lot of them don't take advantage of that equity um, and they still end up in foreclosure. I mean, we looked at, um, from the perspective of, of foreclosures that we, foreclosure auctions, we did in the last few years, how many of those was the winning bid over the unpaid balance of the loan, which would indicate equity. I mean, we don't know any other loans on the property, but just using that that measurement, there were 40 in 2019, there were 44% or excuse me, 46% of the properties that went to foreclosure on our platform sold above that total debt owed in 2020, it went down just a little bit. It was 44%, but still a lot of those are happening. And then the other thing to get a little bit into the weeds, but even among properties that had specified debt bids, meaning the lender said the lender didn't basically didn't think the property had equity based on their valuation of it. And so they, they lowered the, the credit bid at the foreclosure auction mm-hmm. and below the total debt owed. So that's a signal they don't think the property has equity. But e- even 16% of those foreclosures, those what we call specified debt or specified bid foreclosures, 16% of them ended up selling for more than the total debt. So it's, it's interesting that this equity is appearing even when the lender doesn't think there's equity and the homeowner apparently does either doesn't think there's equity or doesn't know how to take advantage of that. Yeah. I think there's, that's a, it's a really interesting thing that happens. And when I first started doing business in Texas, that was one of the most baffling things to me because when I started buying foreclosures in California in 2009 and 2010, it was because they were just playing upside down. They owed $700,000 on a $400,000 house. And the only time we got to buy something was if the lender said, hey, it's not worth 700, let's drop our bid, right? Peters had equity. It was baffling to, to see it happen. Yesterday, there was a sale and uh, opening bid was 383,000. That was total debt owed on a single family house in Austin. It sold for 776,000. So it sold for $390,000 more than what was owed on the property. Wow. And you go like, wow, why didn't that person sell it? Now, pre-pandemic, my answer was the foreclosure process is fast. So in Texas, it's fast. If you miss a payment on the 1st, on the 10th, you can get your notice of default. And three weeks later, you could go to foreclosure. So here you could actually get foreclosed on very, very quickly So pre-pandemic, I believed, okay, people lost their house with equity because they didn't quite know that they could sell it in time or it was going to take. And that was always our pitch when we would go knock on people's doors. We're like, look, you still have time to sell it to us and walk away with your equity instead of of losing your home in foreclosure. Right now, I don't know what what 
really causes it because they have time because for because during the pandemic foreclosures have slowed so much even the ones that are foreclosing right now they've been in default for a few months they've had these chances to kind of catch up uh and, and things like that so it is a little stranger now i think maybe the belief now is more of a Hey, they're not going to foreclose. We get a lot of calls from people going, Hey, I, I thought that I wasn't going to get foreclosed on right now, or I thought I had more time, or I didn't quite know, or I didn't get the notice. And so, hmm. um, but it's always wild when you see, you know, that much equity in houses that act, when they go to sale, you're like, you could have put it on the market. I think maybe the other thing that's happening is it shows that there's a lot more people that are interested in buying properties on the courthouse steps now. Like the beautiful part about buying at auction is it's a fast process. You don't make a bunch of off, like if you do your steps, you have to drive all the houses, you have to do the title, you have to really prepare yourself, but you could show up at auction and walk away owning a house that day, right? You hand over your checks, you own it. That's why all those big single family rental companies really liked auction because they were also buying stuff on MLS, but they could go to the auction and go home with 20 houses that day, 30 houses yeah. that day. So I especially think in uh, Texas with the, the Super Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah, Texas Texas, it's all in one day. So I think maybe the idea that there is, there are more people at auction than there used to be, could be driving it up. But that's a, even yesterday, huge amount of equity on a house. When you go, why didn't that person just sell the house? They could have, they could have walked away with that instead. Real Estate Rockstars, this is a commercial break from our biggest podcast sponsor we have right now, Rent Ready. It can be fun getting a new real estate deal. But it can be tough managing your properties after the fact, especially if you're long distance investing or trying to manage multiple properties by yourself. That's why we're here to tell you about RentReady. RentReady is a property management software that not only makes it easier to manage all your real estate deals from one platform, but they also have the best customer service support in the biz. They're an all-in-one app that lets you easily manage properties, collect rent, list units, screen tenants, sign leases, all from your phone or computer. Imagine all of your real estate doors right in your pocket. How awesome is that? The best part is it's so affordable, one flat price for everything. Unlimited properties, tenants, and support with a real live human. And I have to add in there, that's a new business model that not a lot of people are doing. There's like this freemium model where people say, hey, you can try this, but as soon as you grow, it's gonna cost you a lot of money. Or they kind of punish you when you get too many emails on your list or too many comments. They aren't gonna punish you when you grow. They're not gonna charge you more when you get 10, 20, 30 rentals. They're gonna charge you the same when you have two or three as they will when you have 50 or 60. So you have a nice fixed cost, all software, all in one place. Check it out, RentReady, R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com. And if that's not enough, RentReady is giving our listeners a special code you can use to get a whole year of RentReady for just $54. Use code R-O-C-K-S-T-A-R-50, that's Rockstar50, and sign up for RentReady's annual plan at RentReady.com. Again, R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com with code ROCKSTAR50 to get rent ready for only $54. I'm looking at this, you, know, you, you shared with me kind of your distressed market outlook for 2021 in there and what you think is going to happen kind of mm -hmm. with foreclosures and things like that. I, I want, I want to get into some of those, but right before that, there's articles out there saying the housing market is bubbling and now we've kind of hit our peak and last month, months of inventory starting to go up. There's others saying we've got so much runway left. This is not a bubble because we're still at historically low months of inventory. 
how are you feeling about that? Or what data are you seeing you know, if you're going to make a bet? Yeah. Well, if I was going to make a bet, I would say we've still got runway left. But I think my best guess is we are certainly in the early innings of a housing bubble. And if, you know, the, the psychology of <laughs> markets is they do tend to over <laughs> overdo things. And so if this, if that continues, then we will be in a full-fledged bubble at some point. And that, and, you know, bubble, of course, is kind of a vague word, but basically meaning prices are overinflated and there's, there's, some, there's some correction that's going to happen after that. So I would say we still have runway, but we are in the early stages of, of a bubble forming. And, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of data that suggests there's, there's just so much demand out there in terms of the demographics and, and then on the, on the other side, the, the lack of supply. And so um, there's, there's certainly more runway, I think, in this, this housing boom left, but yeah, it's uh, you know, there, there are a couple of things that have, that have switched in the last couple of months that I look at when you look at kind of look at affordability over the last like 12 months, Prior to February and March, the average house payment on a median-priced home was going up, but the um, actually wages, average wages, were going up faster. So, even though home prices were going up because of lower interest rates, that actual monthly payment you made is is going up less than what you're making. <laughs> but in February and March, that switched, and so the the average monthly payment is going up faster than average wage growth. And, you know, if that continues, that's certainly not sustainable. So that's one thing I think that switched along with, there was a little, a slight uptick in, in inventory, as you mentioned, which to me, that's, you know, we're still very low in terms of inventory. It's really interesting near the end of last year. Yeah. With rates low and, and people's income going up and less stuff to spend their money on, it was like houses, even though housing prices were going up everywhere, it was kind of, they were kind of getting more affordable every month. October, yeah. November, December, January, you were still spending less of your income on housing. So people were like, it was really easy to go, well, this is sustainable because a $400,000 house today is the same payment as a $350,000 house a year ago or 18 months ago, and you're making more. You're saying February and March, that fi finally has shifted. And maybe that starts to be that first part of the, the feeling because affordability is a big part of it. In interest rates are a big part of it. Now, right now, there's just a, a ton of government intervention in the world, right? Like mm -hmm. you, you've been studying markets for probably longer and more than anybody that I talk to. And other than people, like the only th trick I've ever seen before to stimulate the economy or housing was lowering interest rates or raising interest rates or the tax credit. There was like the first time home buyer tax credit. Like if you buy a house, we'll give you 10 grand type thing. I remember that. I forget what year that was when they were trying to kind of push stuff back. Around 2009. Yeah. So 2000, the same time foreclosures were really, the market was still kind of going down. Foreclosures were, were becoming kind of a business. Other than those, like, have you ever seen a time studied in history where there was so much government intervention that could impact housing, like eviction moratoriums, foreclosure moratoriums? Yeah. Not housing specifically. I mean, I think you kind of have to go back to the the depression to see the kind of government intervention at this scale that we're seeing. But to my knowledge, it wasn't really directed at housing back then, <laughs> uh, where, where we're seeing a huge 
because I think the Great Recession certainly was is still you know fresh in our memories, and so that I think has 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 caused a, a big focus on preventing another foreclosure crisis and another housing price crash that we saw in the wake of the, the Great Recession. So yeah, I, I think the answer is <laughs> is no, not directed at housing. And that first time homebuyer tax credit, by the way, I think there's there's proposals floated now to do something along those lines. I think it's really the wrong solution. And there's other economists, I think, who have put out some great ideas because that the first time homebuyer tax credit it was it was actually pretty effective last time, but it was it was in a market where there was a scarcity of demand, and it stimulated demand. We don't really need demand stimulated at this point. Yeah, um, I think the theory is they want to they want to encourage more people to get into home ownership, but it's to me that's going to backfire. It's just going to be the <laughs> the folks who who have the most means who are going to be able to take advantage of that because that will stimulate demand and push up home prices even more. And so that's, uh, you know, I don't, that'll just make the, the housing market hotter, which is good for some people, but it's not good for people trying to get into home ownership. Yeah. The, it's such a great point. The demand is so high right now that when, when you make it to where people that could not afford to buy a home before, now that they can, there's a lot of great reasons behind it. Like you said, back in 2009, they needed that. They needed that to go like, hey, why would I buy today instead of next year if I think the market's falling? Well, this year will help offset some of that cost in this scary, uncertain market. We're not in a scary, uncertain market. We don't need to talk people into buying houses right now. But your point of that it's going to help the wrong people is almost similar to interest rates this last year because interest, interest rates got way lower. And the people that really got, it was almost like it created more income disparity because the people that were doing good, software people, you know, uh, banker, people that worked in offices, like high end, there's a lot of jobs had almost in the financing and banking financing had almost no unemployment, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't have any unemployment this year and rates got lower. So they got to buy bigger houses and refinance their houses. The people that really needed help couldn't qualify to refinance their loan because their jobs were the ones that were kind of. Uh, in shambles. So it was, uh, it was inter. I just saw a lot of articles on kind of that recovery that the people that, that really needed the lower interest rate weren't able to capitalize it. And the people that were, were already doing good. And so it just made, made them better off and didn't really help the people at the entry level as much as it, as much as they thought it would. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, kind of on that topic, I'd, I'd love to get any insight you have on what the, the one thing that did help maybe those people who were most affected by the pandemic was the eviction moratorium, you know, mm-hmm. trying to prevent people from getting kicked out of, of houses they were renting. What kind of impact have you seen on that, on your, on the investors who are using your services and how are they handling that uh, with maybe current, both current uh, renters as well as properties they're buying that are occupied if they, if they are buying occupied properties? Yeah. It's, I want to say it's getting a little, there's a, there's a lot to that. So, and there was a new, there was something passed just came over the wire just a little bit ago that said a federal judge just kind of just struck down the, the CDC eviction moratorium. So they had done the same thing. Let me see. Federal judge vacates CDC's eviction moratorium that came through an hour ago. 
So that was going to today. Uh, federal judge vacates CDC eviction moratorium. It's still going to get, you know, there's going to be battles back and forth on that of whether or not it, it holds true. So at the very beginning, the eviction moratorium was, it, it wasn't that bad. We didn't see very many people getting put into that eviction moratorium on the investor side because people wanted their housing. So even though they couldn't be evicted if they didn't pay, many people still paid. And I think most investors, the first three to six months after the pandemic hit, they had higher collection rates than they kind of ever had before. They were doing really good on collections because people wanted their house. It was more important and their occupancy went up. About three to six months in, we started to see as, a, as an investor ourselves and other people around where they started to have people signing that CDC form and it was very easy to prevent evictions because all they had to say was, I'll be homeless if I'm evicted. And then judges in courtrooms, some of them stopped having hearings completely. Some of them you still got to go say, well, it's invalid because of this or they're not telling the truth or they have another house. And so there was, it was kind of like they could sign the letter and then in some places near Dallas, Texas, they, they just closed all their eviction courts completely for four or five months. So that was, so we definitely had people that it helped and then people that abused it. More recently, they, um, and there were people that would stop buying occupied houses on the courthouse steps, essentially at, at auction and even buying on MLS. I had a couple where I was supposed to buy from an investor and the renter didn't move out on the day that we were, you know, that we were supposed to close. And they said, Hey, my renter didn't move out. Do you want to close on it with them in it? Right. And they were paying like $500 below market rent. And the answer is no, we absolutely do, do not want to buy it with the renter in it because six, because a year ago we had more rights as landlords than now. And if they were, if they told you they were going to move out and they didn't, now I have no ability to make them move out. And so it is canceling deals. You know, essentially it is harder to buy. People will not buy as many occupieds as they would have in the past because of that right change. A few months ago, when they started doing government stimulus to pay the back rent, those programs, a lot of them got eaten up pretty quick. Then they did another basis of it. Right now, there's a lot of money available in Texas specifically for people that haven't paid their rent. And here was uh, like the win of the eviction moratoriums. The yeah, at first we would reach out to the people that were that hadn't paid and said, "Hey, but you can fill out this form to get uh, your free rent from this government program." A lot of them wouldn't fill out the, the form. They wouldn't take the 10, 10 or 15 minutes. A lot of the residents wouldn't take the 10 or 15 minutes to fill out the form because it was there. It was work for them and they kind of didn't have to. And then uh, a judge in Texas a month or two ago said uh, they were going to invalidate the CDC eviction moratorium letter two and allow evictions to take place again. When that happened, we reached out to the res our, the tenants and they filled out the forms and, and we've gotten, and we've received a bunch of money in just the last few weeks that are paying people's rent, all their back rent from when the pandemic started and the next few months of rent. So they have like three more months into the future. So I think one thing where they got it wrong and they could have done a better job is have one or the other. You could have, if you have the eviction, if you're going to pay people's rent, you don't need the eviction moratorium because eviction is the reason they fill out the paperwork. Or if you're not, not have that stick, rent. Yeah. when they had both, it became like, a, well, there's no incentive uh, for them to go. So now I think it's a lot more normal process. And as the U.S. maybe opens it up, I think it'll get better. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we certainly see, we've been surprised to see rising demand even for our occupied properties, which pretty much all the properties that we sell for closure auction are vacant because of our clients are mostly uh, governed by the the foreclosure moratorium, which exempts only vacant properties, but on the occupied bank owned properties, we're seeing 
there's less demand. We look at sales rate and that's lower on those occupied properties. And I think that is exactly what you're saying. There's, a, there's an extra risk factor that investors are taking to account there, but that the demand has been going up even on occupied properties, which is interesting. And we did a survey recently that just, that showed of, those, of our buyers who are buying those occupied properties, 62% of them said, you know, they're, they're, they're offering cash for keys and relocation assistance, but, you know, the majority of them are at least offering that. But then there's 62% who said that it's at some point, or at least with some of their properties, they've rented back to the current occupant as, as a way of, you know, kind of getting, I, I mean, maybe that it's part of their investing strategy to begin with, but um, it also allows them to avoid that eviction conundrum, yeah. I guess. We, we've definitely had the strategy of buying at foreclosure auction and renting back even to the pre- previous owner. We have a few, we have a few tenants that owned the house before we bought it and they've, and they've even rented for the last couple of years, right? We bought the house of foreclosure a couple of years ago. They never had to leave. They just paid us rent instead. And some of them, I think it was a breath of fresh air. We're like, Hey, you no longer have to worry about maintenance. You don't have to worry about paying your, your 10,000 bucks in back mortgage. You get a fresh start. You rent the house. Now we'll take care of the hard stuff. You just pay your rent. But the, and you still get a you li- get to live in the neighborhood that you picked and schools that you liked and all that. Yeah, it's still your house. It's like we're just giving you the we'll give you a chance of that that restart that you didn't have before. Yeah, it's all it's it's really interesting as we kind of see that shift. You know, back in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, there were a lot of foreclosures of occupied properties. There were a lot of laws in place and rights to protect. You know occupants. So you couldn't foreclose on them right away. Cash for keys was very common. I think right now, you know, that probably makes, uh, you know, makes a lot of sense uh, that, that, that that's happening. So it, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's reminding me of back then of going, Hey, can we, can we pay uh, and do that instead? Yeah. So let's see. So looking at your stats, I know we only have a few minutes left. It's funny. I wanted to talk about your foreclosure stuff, but we're like flying along. And <laughs> before we even hit record, you and I had to catch up on everything else that's going on. So foreclosures are down from where they were a year ago. And again, you know, Darren's, he's the VP at auction.com. They have more foreclosures than anyone, the, the trustee of more foreclosures than anyone in the US. And so you're getting to see a lot of stats, but they're starting to come back in some markets to not pre-pandemic levels, but close to it. So where is it coming back? How much is it coming back? How does it compare to what it was like before? Sure. Yeah. And I think, um, we're seeing nationwide in the first quarter, and I'll share this if this is okay. Share the screen yeah. here. Um, oh, cool! You got it. You're seeing that there. Yeah, the you know this is a heat map showing where we're seeing foreclosures come back. The percentages here are percentage of pre-pandemic levels. So in the first quarter nationwide, we were at 30% of pre-pandemic levels, meaning we're 70% below <laughs> pre-pandemic levels, and that that was up from the fourth quarter where we we were at 20%. The green is where we're seeing the numbers come back more strongly. Uh, the blue is not so strongly. You see, if you one of the a few states that stand out to me are Florida now is starting. Florida starting to come back pretty strongly, and even California at twenty five percent. Some of those high volume states. Texas stands out because it's low, and I do believe, and and maybe you can uh, concur on this that this may have may have had to do somewhat with the uh the snowstorm <laughs> that you guys had down there yeah uh, that that slowed down a lot of foreclosure activity um but then the other states that maybe are less of a surprise with low 
a low return are New York and New Jersey, where we're in the single digits relative to a year ago. And that's not really a surprise because those states have tended to be much more aggressive in uh, trying to prevent foreclosures historically. And also those states are um, judicial and dependent on the court system to process foreclosures. But yeah, certainly the Southeast and Midwest are, are some of the states where we're seeing Dude, that's so interesting. So, so for those of you guys that are watching on YouTube, you're seeing this chart. If you're listening to it on the podcast, you can go see some of these charts on our YouTube page. But compared to last year, it looks like Oklahoma is you know almost back to pre-pandemic levels. It's at seventy-six percent mm-hmm. of pre-pandemic, right? So if I'm if I'm reading that right, so it's a hundred would be that it's at where, where and one of the states is at a hundred. What state is that? Uh, actually, South Dakota is at two hundred percent now, and then. North Dakota is at 122%. Now that's somewhat deceptive because the number, the volume is so low there. But yeah, Yeah. I mean, uh, there are some states, you know, Indiana is another one that stands out. That's actually, you know, a little bit higher volume. That's at 87% of of year ago levels. Yeah. And when you do look at this, so Texas is at the first quarter compared, uh, compared to last year. Uh, first quarter of 2020 compared uh, of 2021 compared to 2020, we're only at 13%. But I think you, you are right. We had a crazy weather freeze here that happened during posting time where courthouses weren't even open, right? They couldn't physically go do the foreclosure postings for one of the months. So we had kind of record low numbers. It has felt like we were, we've been running in Texas at about 25% of pre-pandemic levels. We also had, during the first quarter, there was two or three counties that are some of our bigger ones that had full uh, full moratoriums where just nothing was selling. So in San Antonio and in, in, and in uh, Houston, there were no foreclosures essentially the first quarter. Now they just turned back on again and those hit pre-pand. There, were more, there was like 90 houses sold in, in San Antonio last month. That, that was as much as you know March before COVID hit. So... So it, it, it gives give and take. So interesting. All right, what else you got? Well, I mean, we can, I know we're limited by time here, but uh, we can look at, this is just broken down by that same kind of view, but broken down by the type of loan. So the darker red is the, the loan types where we're seeing the foreclosures come back a little bit more. So USDA loans, which are a smaller volume, are at 37% of year ago levels, VA 32%. FHA 33%. So those are coming back a little bit more, which is not surprising. Those tend to be the higher risk loans in this environment. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, even the GSE loans, you know, Fannie, Freddie, and uh, private loans are are close to that level of 30%. Actually, Fannie, Freddie is at 30% of year ago levels and the private books, private loans are at uh, 28%. I wouldn't be surprised to see that private book get get more orange <laughs> next quarter because yeah. i think there's those are technically not under the foreclosure moratorium and a lot of lenders have been holding back to abide by that in principle but there's a certain tipping point where they can't just continue to or they don't want to discontinue to uh, hold off the foreclosure on some of these loans that are that are in that spot Yes, so many of the foreclosures for a while. We, we it seemed like we saw a lot more commercial loans as a percentage of single family than we had in the past. But but that was because the commercials didn't have the same sort of protection 
um, that single family, or there was a lot of special type loans in that, you know, kind of private and, and, and NPL part that you show in there. That feels like so much of what we're seeing in Texas, especially in our big cities where we have the most statistics. You had a chart that kind of showed one of the things you talked about was so more time and forbearance moratorium is eroding that home equity. The I think you have in this presentation, maybe it's like slide 10. Yeah, that was that's kind of the visual of what you were talking about before, right? Yeah, here's that 36% after 18 months of, of deferred interest and, and uh, taxes and insurance thrown in, you get FHA VA loans. They're estimating our 36% of those have low equity, which is under 90% LTV or over 90% LTV. We did, well, I didn't mention this, we did analysis of our own data that shows the average price at foreclosure sale is going up. As you, as we've talked about, there's a lot of demand. People are buying, it's gone up 11% quarter over quarter in the first quarter, but the total debt is going up faster, which is, to me, it, it's a reflection of the, what Black Knight is finding is that even though prices are going up, values are going up on these, even these distressed properties, the total debt amount is actually going up faster. And so people in default are, uh, despite the high price appreciation, are losing, are falling behind on that treadmill. That's interesting. So it's like, so prices are going up every month, but so is total debt or especially the ones in forbearance. So in forbearance, you know, there may be, you know, essentially their mortgage is going up by a percent or two every month and their house in some cases might be going up higher than that, but it might be going less than a percent or two. You know, there's, there's so many good stats on here, Darren, but I want to be respectful of, of your time. I know that we've gone over the amount of time that I had you, you booked for today. If people want to find out more information about, you know, maybe, you know, they want to get copies of your sheet uh, of, of your power of your presentation, or they want to reach out to you with questions. What's the, what's the best way for people to reach you or find out more? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, a great place where we post a lot of this research and analysis is at auction.com forward slash in the news altogether in the news. So uh, a lot of this, this uh, research is posted there. And so that's probably the best, best place. I am posting a lot on LinkedIn. So look, look there for a lot of this, this analysis. And yeah, and then, you know, of course, auction.com in general is a great place to go find the actual properties and research uh, what uh, even a lot of research on, on what's happening in your, in your market. One thing I did want to mention, maybe it's a little bit of a self shameless plug is that we we're really excited about it. And a lot of investors are, are getting excited about it is we've introduced on our app. If you go to, if you download the auction.com app on your phone, there are a growing number of properties across the country where you can bid remotely so you don't have to go to the, to the courthouse steps and you can bid from your phone. Now you have to set up a escrow account to fund those bids, but we're finding that that is allowing people to expand their, their uh, radius of where they're finding inventory outside of maybe just one county where they go to the, the auction. So check that out as well. Yeah, I actually bid remotely for the first time yesterday, Darren. So the uh, we, we went through that, saw it on the app, really cool. You're bidding back and forth 
live on the app. You can bid in other states. You know, a lot of our the people that, that sign up to do it, go to our Texas auctions are people from out of state looking to go there. And they're hiring, you know, people on our teams to go drive and bid for them. And it, and you're the remote bidding that you guys are doing is super cool. And yeah, I think I think the article that I saw recently that I had shared through my social media, I had got from your LinkedIn page. And you guys were doing a bunch of statistics that were out there. So uh, Darren Bloomquist with, with auction.com. Darren, thanks again for joining me. I can't wait to have you on again so we can talk about more statistics and share more stuff out there. Yeah. And, you know, thanks again for joining me. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be here. All right, real estate rock stars. This is Aaron Muchastegui jumping in again to thank you for listening to the show. Hopefully you guys loved listening to that one. And I want to make sure that you know about all of the extra resources that we have. And also we need your help. They say podcasts are free. You get to listen to podcasts for free. But what is the cost of that podcast? I would say if I could beg you to pay anything for that podcast, I would say the cost of the podcast is going and giving a review. So whether you download it on Google or Apple or YouTube or anywhere else, please go give us a review. Say what you liked, what you didn't like. It helps us get better guests. The more reviews, the higher we get in the rate rankings. Right now, we are the biggest podcast out there for real estate agents. And we want to keep that spot because we know there's lots of podcasts out there. So go give us a review. Also, be sure to go to hybendigital.com. If you liked any of the resources that those real estate agents talked about, we've got a huge video vault of those resources for free. Every punny that comes on the podcast that we interview, they give us something that helps them get their deals or helps them work with their clients. And we put that in the toolbox in our vault for you. So go to hybendigital.com and you can get it. If you're looking for real estate education, go to rebusuniversity.com. We have all sorts of courses in there to help agents succeed in real estate, how to get the listing, how to negotiate deals, you know, how to become an investor, all sorts of different stuff, rebusuniversity.com. And if you want to chat with me, go find me on Instagram. If you come find me on Instagram, you can send me messages. Tell me what you want to hear. Tell me what you liked, what you didn't like. We try to put a bunch of content out there too. You can find me in two different places. It's at rerockstars.com for our Real Estate Rockstars page or at erinamuchastegui.com for my personal Instagram page where I can chat with you about all sorts of different things. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.